Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Hi, and welcome to Sorceress, a podcast where I chat with authors and audiobook narrators about books, and especially audiobooks in the urban fantasy category. If you dig wisecracking wizards, conflicted lycanthropes, antagonistic undead, and all those other things that go bump in the night and then get bumped back, you're in the right place. So make yourself comfortable, salt the doors in the windowsills, and join me, James Anderson Foster, as we get to know the creators of this fascinating genre. So tonight I'm joined by author John G. Hardness, who is a teller of tales, a writer of wrongs, defender of ladies' virtues, and some people call him Maurice, for he speaks of the pompadus of love. He is also the award-winning author of the urban fantasy series The Black Knight Chronicles, the Bubba the Monster Hunter comedic horror series, the Quincy Harker Demon Hunter dark fantasy series, and many other projects. He is also a cast member of the role-playing podcast Authors and Dragons, where a group of comedy, fantasy, and horror writers play Dungeons and Dragons very poorly. In 2016, John teamed up with a pair of other publishing industry ne'er-do-wells and founded Falstaff Books, a small press dedicated to publishing the best of genre fiction's misfit toys. In his copious free time, John enjoys long walks on the beach, rescuing kittens from trees, and playing Magic the Gathering. John, welcome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, James. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you for asking. Holy crap, that was a big intro, by the way. That's a lot of stuff you do. (laughs) Yeah, and um, just, just for the record, I don't actually rescue kittens from trees. I'm a big dude, and it takes a big tree to hold me. (laughs) and my days of climbing things those are over you know i I have to say though you kind of ruins i was gonna i was gonna say that you know one of those things in the intro is not true (laughs) many (laughs) several of the things in the intro are not true (laughs) so um in getting ready for this uh podcast i wanted to uh you know just gather some basic stats uh, on your work uh so that i could look you know somewhat intelligent and um so I'm I'm blown away. First of all, uh, 38 audiobooks. God, yeah. That's and when I that's a well, yeah. But when I went to Amazon to see how many just books that you've done, <laughs> dude, there are t- there's ten pages, literally ten, not ten items, ten pages on Amazon of books that you have either written or contributed to. What the hell? So those numbers are a little skewed because (laughs) for the first two years I was writing the Bubba the Monster Hunter series, Mm -hmm. I was releasing individual short stories as eBooks. So I would release three, I would release four of them for 99 cents. Then I would bundle them into a 299 collection. Then when I got to about 110, 120,000 words worth of Bubba, I would bundle those into seasons. So each short story got released three times. Nice. So, so 
The first 25 or so Bubba the Monster Hunter entries are all short stories, and they collect into three volumes. Okay. And then each Harker book, as you know, mm-hmm. comes out as a novella. And then when I get four novellas, those get collected. So I've got three full volumes of Harker, four full volumes of Bubba, six Black Knight Chronicles novels, Amazing Grace, Queen of Cats, The Chosen, and Genesis. Yeah, there's still a bunch. <laughs> I was going to say, is that all? Uh, wow. No, it's it's actually not. There's a couple Man. more. Including a collaborative thing that I do with the Authors and Dragons guys called Shingles, which is a parody series that we do. And each of the cast members, once a month, one of us releases a book in the Shingles series. Man. Well, and you, you like edit or, or curate uh, collections too. At least you have, right? Yes. Because uh, I know I, um, God, I listened to um, the Deacon Chalk series, year, like oh, yeah. back in 2013, 2014. And um, so, it, short story long, um, I, I'm catching up on season 13 of Supernatural. Mm hmm. Right. And uh, on the the CW app and uh, just watch the episode uh, where, you know, they're all season 13. They're all on the other side or Sam, Sam and Dean aren't. But uh, Mary's over there and she just met their Bobby. Okay, which then uh, prompted me to think of the Deacon Chalk audiobooks because he narrates those. Um, Yes. And I was like, oh, man, you know, do I have them all? It's been a long time. Has anything new come come out? So I went to go look for those. And I went and looked on the author page. And, you know, when I realized he hadn't done any, you know, it it looked like he hadn't done anything new in a really long time. Um, And and that's when I went to his author page and I saw your name listed for one of the books that he'd contributed to. And I was like, oh, crap. I've got a connection. James. Well, James is a good friend of mine. I love that guy. He's my brother from another mother. Um, I'll see him in a couple of weeks at Dragon Con, and I'm really looking forward to that. He contributed nice. a short story to my Big Bad anthology. There were two anthologies that I co-edited with Emily Lavin Leverett, who now writes a novel series for me at Falstaff. We co-edited two anthologies where all of the stories were told either from the point of view or with the villain as the protagonist. So James contributed a story to one of those. So yeah, I've edited some anthologies as well and contributed to some anthologies as well. Where, where do you find the time? My, I mean, this is, (laughs) I I don't sleep a whole lot. Okay. I I guess. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, I also, this is my day job. So I don't have to juggle a I don't have to juggle a full-time job anymore. I've been writing and publishing and editing full-time for 3 years now and that has helped a lot. Not having to juggle other things lets me hammer it out. And I was trained to write for I, I was trained as a journalist kind of. I wrote for the internet poker industry before I wrote any Well, I wouldn't say before I wrote any fiction, but before I wrote anything that was intended to be fiction. (laughs) So that taught me to write a tight first draft. 
So I hammer out fairly clean copy pretty quickly. Nice. Now, you mentioned uh, Falstaff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, a lot of your stuff early on, you were self-publishing. Yes. And which, I mean, in this in this genre uh, is is hugely popular. You know, it seems like authors really want um, not only that that tight control over what they're releasing, when it's released, the price point, uh, but also that direct connection to to the fans. And the fans seem to love that. But at some point you made the decision to step up the game from indie self-publishing to small, you know, Falstaff, I mean, Falstaff publishing. Why did you, yeah, first off, why? Because obviously (laughs) you don't have a ton of free time. Um, And, but what are you able to do with Falstaff um, that, that makes it worth committing that time to? So I mentioned Emily Lavin Leverett, who I've worked with on the big bad one and two. It's all her fault. <laughs> she and her co-author, Sarah Joy Adams, had been working on a book called Changelings Fall for about four or five years. And they were shopping it around and sending it to agents. And I had read an early draft of the book and really it resonated with me. And I sent them to a couple of people and recommended them to people, and they just couldn't get any traction. So they came up to me at a convention here in Charlotte, Con Carolinas, which is where I met them, and we all attend that convention every year. And they said, so we're not getting any traction traditionally publishing this book, so if we, so we're just going to self-publish it. And I looked at them and said, please, God, don't. I love you both, but you would be the worst self-publishers in the world. (laughs) They're both college professors, and they're brilliant women, but they don't have the time to learn the promo and the hustle that it takes to be a successful self-publisher. Sure. So I said, all right, give it, keep submitting it. If you haven't sold it by the end of the year, I'll publish it. Well, they came back to me in December and said, remember what you said. (laughs) And I was like, all right, I said it. So when I had committed to doing that, I figured I'd better figure out how to actually make a company out of this. And I've been on the convention circuit in the Southeast, particularly the mid-Atlantic region, for almost 10 years now, ever since I started writing and publishing fiction. So I've got a lot of friends that I see at conventions every year, every couple of years. And fortunately, they don't think I'm a complete idiot. So when I started talking about, hey, I'm going to start publishing other people's work, do you have anything that you haven't been able to sell? Or do you have an idea that you haven't had a good reason to flesh out yet? And I was able to land some pretty awesome people to work with me. So once I got a great great talent pool that said, all right, we'll buy in, then we hit the ground running. Our first publication as a published Falstaff books has existed in name only since the first time I pub- self-published a book. 
Mm-hmm. I that's just what I called it. It wasn't a real company until January 1st of 2016. And we published an anthology called Cinched, and it was about corsets. And I had I had Misty Massey in that anthology, I had Gail Z. Martin in that anthology, I had Sarah and Emily in that anthology. I had some really great talent in there. And that kind of told people that we're coming out and we're coming out swinging. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've produced over 50 titles in the past two years, two and a half years. That's amazing. We've got a well over 120 under contract. And we're now up to working to with 30 or so authors, including several New York Times bestsellers. So I'm thrilled with the way it's growing. And I'm stunned when people message me and say, hey, I've got this thing. It kind of <laughs> died. Do you want to maybe take a look at it? And I say, why, yes, you've been on the New York Times bestseller list and you've won many industry awards for your fiction. Yes, I will happily take this novella project that no one else is smart enough to publish for you. (laughs) So how how personally involved are you with with each of these projects through Falstaff? Uh, Well, I do the formatting and layout for every book we produce. (laughs) Oh, my. With your copious free time? Honestly, it takes. I use Vellum, which is a piece of software for the Mac that creates ebooks, and it's so easy. That that really is what I do to relax. I format books. It's not as lame as it sounds. Yeah, it is. (laughs) You're an odd duck, John Hartness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, how how true that is. Um, I write or edit at least a third of what we produce. Um, I probably write 20% of our output because I'm publishing a novella every month, just about. Yeah. So, and then I've created these spinoff universes from my Bubba the Monster Hunter series and my Quincy Harker series. Mm -hmm. So I'm editing all of those because that, lets me make sure that nobody's crossing the streams as it were a quick question on that i've always wondered so you've got um the bubba the monster hunter Mm -hmm. universe the quincy harker universe Mm -hmm. and your black knight chronicles universe and i've always wondered are these in the same world are no. these the same no okay because i like I, I keep waiting like are, are we gonna see a crossover at some point there have been references between Harker and Bubba because they mm-hmm. are in the same universe. And it's a business decision. Mm-hmm. I don't, I originally self published the Black Knight books, but then I sold them to Bellbridge Books out of Memphis. They're a great little mid sized press, and I've had a great time working with them, and I've still got three more Black Knight books coming out with them. But they have a right of first refusal for any books in the same world as the Black Knight Chronicles. And I wanted to put out more work 
in a calendar year than any reasonable traditional publisher would do. So I made the decision very early on that nothing else ever touches the Black Knight universe. So the Black Knight universe stands completely alone, and Bubba and Harker are a universe of their own. Gotcha. That makes sense. And some of my other stuff doesn't touch anything either. Queen of Cats is a uh, fantasy realm. It's a ba- your basic European high fantasy style thing. That mm-hmm. doesn't touch anything that we're doing in the other stuff. And Amazing Grace is my Southern Gothic paranormal mystery series, and that's its own thing. So, you know, you you've got. All of this, and I mean, it, it, I almost feel bad saying all of this because it, it, it doesn't encompass all of this, um, but yeah. you, you've got all this going on. And, um, you know, and, and j- as an aside, you mentioned just briefly um, something that I, I really want to call out before I get to my main point. And that's uh, when you were talking about your friends that weren't weren't really ready to become what they needed to be as self-publishers, the, the mm-hmm. hustle, the, the going to conventions, the promoting and all of that. Um, and I have to say that hands down uh, of, of the people I know that are independently or self-published that are successful and full-time, I like 30% or to almost 40% of their job seems to be getting out and doing that hustle. So, you know, for, for people that are listening and thinking, you know, I've got an idea, I've got a story, maybe I can do this. Um, man, pay attention to like, to, to what the successful independent authors are doing to get and then stay successful, see where they're promoting themselves, go to the conventions, contact them and say, man, I I love your books. They're, they're wildly successful. They've inspired me. What is it you do to, to get your books in front of other people and then do that? Um, so that's my mini rant. Um, but, uh, so you're a full-time author, you said, well, for full-time author, editor, uh, book formatter, public, like you wear all the hats. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of authors that do still have the day day gig. Yeah. And, and dream about the day when they can do this full time. What did you have to give up in order to be where you are today doing what you love? So this is my second run at quitting my day job to be a writer. And the first one did not go very well at all. I quit my day job in 2012 and spent a year. I was, I was going to be a writer. The black Knight Chronicles had taken off. We were going, we were moving a lot of books and I spent a year being a writer. Note that there's a big difference between writing and being a writer. Mm-hmm. I went to a lot of conventions. I did a lot of appearances. I shook a lot of hands. I didn't write very much. I had to fail was the first thing I had to do. I had to fail spectacularly and go crawling back looking for a day job 
and taking one at half the salary I'd had when I left the company I used to work for and spend another couple of years digging myself out of the hole from making the mistake of quitting my job too early. Then when I got, I got really lucky in so many ways with the Quincy Harker series. I wrote the first book, Raising Hell, out of pure spite. (laughs) I saw an ad for Constantine on NBC, Mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, that's going to suck donkey dong, because you can't say fuck on NBC. Right. And I read Hellblazer back in the 90s when Garth Ennis was writing it. And if you want to talk about somebody who uses fuck like a comma, Garth (laughs) Ennis. I mean, the man is poetic in his profanity. He makes Chuck Wendig sound like a kindergarten teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided that I would write my version of what John Constantine should behave like today. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I don't want to make him British because that would that's just too direct a ripoff. I was like, well, if he's American, I don't even remember how the idea of using Jonathan Harker and Mina Murray's kid came from. I have no idea. I don't remember where I got the idea to use him as the protagonist because he is a canonical character from Dracula. Mm-hmm. But I decided to write that, and it was pure spite. And it took off. The book sold really well. So I thought, hey, I've seen this movie before. I'm going to write a bunch more. So I did. And I had about a six-month cushion at my last day job where I was working from home. I was largely unsupervised. And I knew that I was not going to be with the company for uh, for very long. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great fit. I was tired of being in that industry. So I kind of wrote Quincy Harker books when I should have been working for them. <laughs> so I had to learn discipline of hitting a word count and getting it out there. and giving it what i gave up was stability yeah i'm the breadwinner for my household my wife doesn't work outside the home her job is to take care of me and herself um so i don't have anybody else to pick up the slack if my earnings drop off that means that there there are times when Each month is a juggling act because I am a small business owner and I'm going to pay my writers their royalties, even if it means that I'm maybe letting something float on a credit card for a month that I would have normally paid off at the end of the month. So I gave up stability to be a writer. And that, I think, is the biggest thing that people don't know they're giving up. Yeah. So what was different between your first go at being a full-time writer and and the second time around? How did you know you were ready 
And what did you do differently the second time to, to make it stick? I had, because I had fallen on my face and I had watched the business longer, I would only, I had only been in writing genre fiction for about three years when I quit my day job the first time. And I hadn't gone through any of the, well, what happens if Amazon changes something and then your income is cut in half? which happened almost immediately after I quit my day job, they redid how Kindle Unlimited pays authors. And all of a sudden, people who wrote short stories and were getting a lot of Kindle Unlimited money were now not. Yeah. Because when I was getting $2 every time someone picked up a short story, I was making far more money off of a short story borrow than I was off of a sale of a short. Then when they changed the plan, which I think is a more fair structure, now we're paid four pages read. I was writing short work. That really hurt. Right. So I I knew more. I knew how fragile it was. And I knew that I had to I had to hustle and I had to make sure that I could, if I couldn't self-publish something, that I could sell it to at least a reputable small press and keep stuff going and keep stuff selling out that way. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it sounds like going back to the day job was affording you time to do that, that prep work that you didn't do the first time around, just yeah. industry-wise. And yeah. it afforded me the stability to know that my bills were paid and know that my insurance was covered while in the evenings I wrote and wrote and wrote. So I slept even less then than I do now. But I was able to, you know, you juggle it. Yeah. Do you feel like you've, you've made it? In no. this industry? No. What would that mean for you to, to be able to look at, at, at your body of work and, and where you are in the industry and say, you know what, this is it. I've made it. I, I, I honestly don't know and I hope I never do. I, I'm the type of person I need to stay hungry. I want my authors, my Falstaff authors, for them, I want to publish a New York Times bestseller. I want to publish a number one book on Amazon, not just number one in some tiny little niche category with 12 books. I want to publish somebody who's got a balls-out blockbuster like nothing I've ever seen. And then they'll have made it. And then I'll feel like I've made it as a publisher. But as a writer, I don't know that I would ever think I've made it. I might be comfortable if I get to a point where I'm making a living and I'm not ever worried about the next two or three months of Amazon sales. That would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) If I get to a point where, you know, I don't tell the wife, okay, we're not renting any movies on iTunes this week because it's the 25th and Amazon pays on the 29th. 
yeah. you know, I I would like to be comfortable financially, but as far as accolades, I don't have any specific goals because I want to always keep pushing. Sure. I mean, obviously there are things I want out of life. I'd love to have a New York Times bestseller. I'd love to have a Hugo nomination or a Nebula award or any of that. I don't actually expect to ever see those things. You don't think so? No, certainly not the award stuff. I, I write pulp fiction and pulp fiction doesn't get literary style awards. And I'm okay with that. I have friends who have been nominated for and won Hugos and Nebulas, and I'm thrilled for them. They work in a different style than I do. So I'm happy to make a living. You know, Shakespeare was a hack. (laughs) Shakespeare was writing for the groundlings, and I'm good with my groundlings. (laughs) Nice. Well, and now to be fair, Quincy Harker was a finalist in the Voice Arts Awards a couple of years ago. So it was, it was. It oh. didn't win. It didn't uh-huh. win. It was a finalist. So cool. And close. Um, and the first Quincy Harker book did win the Manly Wade Wellman Award, which is given by the North uh-huh. Carolina Speculative Fiction Foundation every year for the best sci-fi or fantasy novel published in by a North Carolina author that year. So I'm looking at that plaque right now. It was a great honor. Well, there you go. So you, you do have accolades. I do. I have, and there's around here somewhere, there's a, there, uh, there it is. It's an epic electronic publishing industry coalition award for best horror novel for one of the black Knight books. So I have a couple of awards. They're very nice, but that's not what I'm chasing. All right. The things that get me off a fan who emails me and says, I just found your stuff. You're my new favorite author. That's amazing. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. We had, where there's a convention here in Charlotte called con Carolinas at each summer. Well, all the authors and dragons cast converged on con Carolinas this year to do a live podcast. And that's six of us from all over the United States and England. We had people fly from Seattle to see us. That blew us away. That's got to feel nice. Oh, it was amazing. I came home and told my wife about it. And I told her, I hope that never gets old. I don't ever want to be jaded about the fans and the love that they put forth for stuff. Because I'm a fan. I I mean, I'm freaking out because I'm on a panel at DragonCon with Peter S. Beagle, who wrote The Last Unicorn. (laughs) I'm tripping out. I was on a panel last year with Kim Harrison and Mercedes Lackey. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, and they're two of my favorite authors. So being able to sit next to Jim Butcher on a panel. Uh, Yeah. So has the supernatural and paranormal, paranormal, has this like always been an interest of yours? Oh yeah, absolutely. So so you, you were a huge fan of this genre before you started producing in it. Absolutely. I started writing in this genre. I started writing in this genre because I came upon a grand question. 
Okay. Why aren't there more fat vampires? (laughs) (laughs) Swear to God, that's where the Black Knight Chronicles came from, and that launched it all. Wow. (laughs) I I was reading a lot of Laurel K. Hamilton's Anita Blake books, and I was watching the first season of True Blood. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in True Blood where there's a pudgy, doughy, 40-something-year-old guy who's a vampire. And I thought to myself, why is this the first fat vampire I've ever seen? I would think, because I'm a big dude, like I said, I've got an extra pint floating around in me, and I'm going to be way easier to catch. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm just thinking, you know, I am what you consider a target-rich environment. <laughs> so, um, uh, when you're, when you're writing these books, mm-hmm. um, what percentage do you find that you're pulling from actual history and folklore versus having to create stuff on your own versus having to make your own fat vampires? You know, I cobble together from folklore, from mythology, from religion, I, I look up a lot of demon names. <laughs> and then sometimes if I don't find one I like, I just kind of make up one that sounds like some of those. So I, some of the, as, as you know, in some of the early Harker books, there's a fair chunk of Latin. Oh, yeah. I've gotten away from that after I realized <laughs> what I was doing to you. <laughs> I was like, my God, oh. he's got to read that in Latin. That's just rude. And then yeah. I did a character in one of my Bubba books where I gave a second, a supplementary character. I gave him an Irish accent and my poor narrator he had to ah. come up with his whole accent, you know. <laughs> so now he he does Bubba. Bubba is first person, um, yes. just like Quincy Harker, and and Bubba is is very. I mean, he's he's got a southern drawl. Yeah. Um, now I'm, I'm curious. Does does the narrator naturally have that drawl? No. Or is he affecting? Okay. He is a hundred percent affecting that. Okay. Um, he does a great job. He lives a lot closer to you than he does to me. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah. G- going back real quick to the um, the, the research the things. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I research every book that I have to read to make sure I'm pronouncing things correctly. And um, yeah, I was, uh, I, I remember researching the Latin for that and realizing, okay, no, this is this is actually from yeah, the ritual. It was an actual and, ex- rite of exorcism. Um, yeah, and, and I, uh, or or a boss, one of the demons you had. Right? Yeah, he's he's a real. A, a, like I think I even got his rank in the armies of hell right I picked one that was way up there already so yeah when I can find something in my research that fits what I want the story to do then I do it when I can't I make it up You know, I'm working through in season three, this whole thing about each of the archangels has their implement. Mm -hmm. I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there there's talk about Michael's sword, but and then I'm watching season two of Lucifer right now. And there's a lot of talk of Azrael's blade because Azrael is the angel of death. 
And so obviously he would have a knife. Well, not in my world. <laughs> there's no real talk about all of the angels having an iconic implement. I just thought that they should. So you know, I, it works. Yeah. So I gave them one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I'm curious. Hmm? Do you believe in the supernatural? And, and, and to any extent, whether it's just ghosts or ghosts yeah. and vampires. and I believe in it to a degree. I believe in ghosts wholeheartedly. Um, I, be- I don't believe that there are as many ghosts as there are ghost hunting TV shows. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally believe in ghosts. I'm, I am that Southern. I do talk to my dead relatives. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to ask, like you, you very definite when you were like, Oh, absolutely. I believe in ghosts. Okay. Now, is there a story that goes along with that? Not really. Okay. I mean, I, just like everyone I've had, or at least most people, I've had times where I was alone in a building and felt a chill or heard something where nothing could really happen. But all of those can be explained reasonably. No, I just believe. Okay. So as far as vampires and werewolves and all that, not so much. But I, yeah, I believe in ghosts, 100%. Solid. It's it's so, funny because my wife loves all those paranormal investigation shows, and I mock them mercilessly. So she teases me about not being a non-believer, and I'm like, "Oh no, I believe. <laughs> I just think these guys are frauds." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. I God, it was it. Uh, I caught. Well, it's like the first season of Paranormal State, I think. Yep. Uh, not too long ago. And I, I just had to stop. Um, and it went least... downhill from there. <laughs> oh, man, I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I believe, but I believe that, just like I believe in aliens, but I don't believe that they come down here and stick rods up people's asses. I'm like, look, that's you get that's you get that's kinky. the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would believe that. Or, you know, look, you you want to get freaky, get freaky. But don't blame it on the little green men. They got enough going on. <laughs> so you you do a number of uh you know panels, you do uh appearances at conventions, um, you know, you you're on a podcast, you 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 interact with your fans. I, I think a a good amount. And I'm curious, uh, you know, I, I assume you, you you have to get like the same grouping of questions over and over again you know where do you get your ideas things like that but what what questions do you wish you got asked more what are some of the things that you you want to share with people that nobody's asking you know most of the time when i come up across something that i want to share that nobody's asked i just tell them (laughs) i have a facebook group where my fans can ask me anything and I don't always answer everything, but they can always ask. So if people want to learn more, they can go to search Facebook groups for John G. Hartness books. But I don't know. Um, I would probably like for people to ask more about how my theater background influenced my writing. 
because mm-hmm. I think it did quite a lot, especially the Shakespeare and Mamet that I have done. Because Shakespeare was a bawdy bitch. <laughs> that guy could write a dick joke like nobody's business. Right. And Mamet, nobody writes better dialogue than David Mamet. You know, I, I have noticed that w- one of the one of the nicest things about your books, uh, and, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine as a narrator, is is the dialogue. The dialogue is so natural feeling and natural sounding. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that um, this is a really weird skill because, you know, people don't, um, you you can't write dialogue the way people actually speak, because if you did that, that sounds stupid. Yep. But there's a way people think they speak and you write the way people think the dialogue sounds. And that's just, it blows my mind that, that you can do that. That's, it's such a, It's a skill. It comes from years of theater. I did theater from the time I was 16 until 2017 was the first year in probably 15 years that I didn't do some aspect of theater at some point in the year. And I've directed, I've performed, I've designed, I've produced. I've done almost every single job in theater. So being surrounded by scripts and actors learning words and manipulating words and working with them and working with acting coaches to shape how they speak gave me the ability to write dialogue. Nice. So whenever a, whenever a new or aspiring writer, and by the way, I don't, I, I like new writer. Once people write, they're writers. I don't care if you've ever published anything or not. So mm-hmm. when new writers ask me how to learn to write dialogue, I tell them, go do theater for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oddly enough, that's what I tell people that uh, want to be narrators. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, you know, I've done some voice stuff. I narrated a short story of my own a few months ago, a little throwaway. It's the editing, man. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was going to ask, have you ever thought about uh, narrating your own stuff? Well, one, the editing. Yeah. Um, I simply don't have the patience for it. My ADHD would go nuts if I had to edit anything more than a 5,000 word short story. And also I can't record in my home because I live in North Carolina and I don't have central air in my house, which means that nine months out of the year, there's a window unit air conditioner blowing behind my head most of the time. Sure. So like right now I super cooled the room earlier today so that we can have a podcast (laughs) and i don't die (laughs) right no i i hear you i i mean i i record at home and uh you know i'm i'm in my basement in a sound booth um and and i have to record at night and i don't know if you can hear him now i have a my three-year-old is upstairs crying because we're approaching bedtime yeah i heard i heard a little wail yeah. Um, so I, I typically have to wait until he goes to bed. So I record from like 10 p.m. 
you know, until five or six in the morning. You're working yeah. on Brandon Sanderson hours. Right. And, and I have to turn, we have central air, but I still have to turn it off. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, fortunately, you know, when, when it's winter, everybody's asleep and under covers when it starts getting real cold in the house. Right. And then during the summer, you know, they can have fans going upstairs, but again, hopefully they're asleep. So, you know, I'm the only one that's suffering through the inclement weather. <laughs> right. And living in a part of the country that has basements, that part of the house stays a little cooler. Right. Yeah. That it does help that, uh, regardless of the temperature outside, it's, it, it's a pretty uniform cool in here. So that, yeah, that helps. We, we don't have basements in the South. It's not a thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm almost the South. I mean, Cincinnati, it's. Yeah, nah, you're not even close. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm right on the Mason Dixon. Uh, we are. We are we are called here the the nicest city in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's a low bar, <laughs> right? Oh God, I had um, I had McLeod Andrews on, um, and uh, he's from Kentucky originally. Poor and guy. I, yeah, well, I mean, he lives in LA now for a reason. I think uh, well, between LA and and New York and wherever he's doing his his fancy stuff. But yeah, I ran my you know best city in, in Kentucky joke by him. And he, he chuckled at me. Yeah. My <laughs> wife spent a lot of her formative years in Kentucky and is very happy to no longer be in Kentucky. You know, I was blown away by the fact that hazard is a real place. Oh yeah. One of the most poverty stricken areas of the country for the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. The depths of poverty in some of those hollers. Actually, I yeah, um, one of my editors is from around Hazard. So yeah, that's I've seen all the seasons of Justified twice. Yeah, that's all true. <laughs> wow. So um, I, I I so appreciate you you taking the time to talk to me, especially you know now that I know just how <laughs> busy you are. Um, what do you, what's coming out for you? What, what can people uh, keep their eyes open for? Well, Bubba the Monster Hunter season four, the collected novellas that will release. Um, I don't know what your release schedule is, but that release is on August 9th. So okay. by the time this comes out, that'll be out and people can pick that up in ebook, paperback and hardback. And then the collected audio on that will be around, will be coming out a couple of months later. And then there'll be a new Quincy Harker novella coming out the end of, yeah, that might hit the end of, yeah, that'll hit the end of August. Mm -hmm. I'm working right now on a military, near future mill sci-fi adventure that may come out this year. But we've got three more Harker novellas this year. A sequel to Amazing Grace, which should come out in early 19. And then there'll be Black Knight 7, which is with the editor. So that should be first or second quarter of 19. So wow. you know, follow me on Facebook. And I, like I said, I do about a book a month. And then at Falstaff, we're publishing uh, not quite a book a week now. So, And several of those are spinoff series of Buff, of Bubba and Harker. So if people like Bubba, they can find the Mark Wojcik novellas by Gelsey and Larry Martin. 
if they like Harker, then they can go and they can find the Adam Franks novellas that um, S.H. Roddy is doing. So, yeah, we got plenty of stuff coming out, and a, like I said, about 20 to 25% of it's mine. Man, that is awesome. And then hopefully sometime in 2019, you, know, you can get an app. Yeah, that's the hope. <laughs> I've got one scheduled. As soon as I do the big rewrite on Black Knight 7, I've scheduled a nap. Nice. <laughs> because when we're done tonight, I need to knock out another half chapter on that mill sci-fi thing, or it's never going to happen. <laughs> oh, I hear you. I hear you. Awesome. Well, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Uh, right. Again, thank you so much. Um, and, you know, you're doing so much. I, I hope you come back, uh, you know maybe end of first quarter 2019 and we can talk about the 50 billion things you you wrote or produced between now and then absolutely i'll be happy to come back anytime awesome thank you so much thank you bye and before we wrap up i want to make sure and give a big shout out to our patrons uh first up is audio after dark an amazing podcast uh where paul stokes interviews authors and narrators of all genres, if you love audiobooks and you're curious about the people that make them, make sure you subscribe to his podcast. I'd also like to uh, say a big thanks to C. Stephen Manley and Dogen Foster. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot. And if you'd like to support this podcast and get your name mentioned uh, as well, head on over to patreon.com forward slash sorceress and sign up to support us for a couple of bucks a month. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. And that's it for this time. Thanks for dropping by. We really hope you enjoyed it, and will come back and see us again. You can find Sorceress on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, Sorceress. That's S-O-R-C-E-R-O dot U-S. And you can find me at jamesnarrates.com, where you'll find a list of audiobooks, demos, and all the usual stuff. If you're enjoying Sorceress, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you're really enjoying it, it'd be mighty kind of you to drop a buck or two in the kitty. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com forward slash sorceress, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash James Narrates. Any support, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated, and it'll help us keep on keeping on. So until next time, when things go bump in the night, remember to bump back. Hello, is anybody here?